Christmas fell on a Sunday, you know why we, as a church, why do we worship on Sundays? I mean, we know that in the Old Testament, um, according to the Jews, the Sabbath was Saturday. Well, it's the last day of the week. Why do we worship on Sundays? It's the Resurrection Day. I mean, that's why we come together. We celebrate the resurrection of the Lord. So what, what do you do when the celebration of the birth falls on the celebration of the resurrection? Well, that's where my message came from this morning. Uh, this morning's short time here in the Word of God is called Living Between Two Advents. Advent simply means the coming, the arrival. And that's, that's what we celebrate at Christmas. And many of you maybe do this. You know, you have a, an Advent tradition or you have an Advent calendar. Or in our house, we had a, a, um, a paper chain that was taped... Uh, to our dining room wall, and every night at dinner, we would pull a, another chain off the link as we approached uh, Christmas. And uh, each chain link had a scripture verse that walked us through the, the birth scenario, the arrival of Christ. Um, so we would read those at the dinner table. But there is uh, the resurrection is a good reminder that uh, Christ's work isn't done yet, and that there is another advent that is to come. There will be a day where uh, the child who arrived in humility in a manger is going to arrive again. And it will be quite different, dramatically different than the first Advent. So that's what I want to talk about. I want to talk about a little bit of education time this morning and a little bit of application. So what does it mean that what is the difference going to look like between the first Advent and the second Advent? And then what does that mean for us living between those two Advents? So, uh, like a lot of you all, I went to bed last night and I woke up celebrating this incredibly significant event, this one of these events that just changed human history, the birth of Christ. Um, but let's talk about the difference this morning between the first advent and the second advent. So in your note sheet there, we're going to bounce around the scriptures a little bit this morning, so, so bear with me, though. they should be on the screen, and if you want to uh, dig through the Bible and, and follow along here, that is highly encouraged. But when we talk about the first advent, the Christmas advent, the first thing we need to remember is this. Jesus came as flesh in form of a newborn human baby. Now we know that. We've been talking about that for the past month. Jesus came in flesh in the form of a newborn baby. And, and we see that in Luke 2. We've read this verse uh, several times throughout the Christmas season. I think we even read it this morning. It says, And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son, and wrapped him in swaddling cloths, and laid him in a manger, because there was no place for them in the inn. That's the Christmas story in a nutshell. That's it. Baby born of flesh to us, God's greatest gift. But what does the second Advent look like? Well, this is what it's going to look like. It's going to mean that Jesus will come in supernatural form. So, whereas an innocent child with flesh on came that first Christmas, there is going to be the coming of Christ the second time that is going to be supernatural. It's going to be dynamic. And here's where I get that from. Let me share with you 
from the end time scenario in Revelation chapter 1. The Apostle John is exiled on the island of Patmos and God gives him this vision. And early on in this vision, he gets a glimpse of the coming Christ. And this is what he sees. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands, and in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man. Now, what is a man? What does that mean, like a son of man? Well, what he's saying is, in this person that I'm looking at, I see one that sort of resembles you and I. So he looked at Jesus, and he saw some characteristics that caused him to say, yeah, he, he's like us. But yet there's differences. Um, it says, clothed with a long robe, with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace. And his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars, from his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun, shining in full strength. Now hang on. We've all driven cars at some point in time. Have you ever been caught in that uncomfortable moment of the day, especially in the wintertime when the sun is really low in the sky, late in the afternoon, and you're stuck driving directly into it, you know? And the sunglasses almost do nothing, and the visor is useless, and you can't see the, the traffic lights change, and you... You're straining your eyes, knowing that you're just burning holes in your cornea. That's what John is looking at here. He's looking at Christ, and he's seeing somebody who, who looks like a man, the son of a man, but at the same time, it's supernatural in his dynamic. Much different than the baby that laid in the manger. And he said, when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying, fear not. I am the first and the last. We sang about that a minute ago. Remember the verse that said um, that you will be the encore? You're the first, but you're also the encore. And the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades. So John looks at this Jesus, and what must have been warring through his mind is, oh my goodness, First of all, just absolute fear and terror and trembling. But what does that mean for us as we move forward, living right here in this moment? You know, we're celebrating Christmas. We're thankful for the gift of the child that was in the manger, the one that came in flesh, knowing that someday Christ is going to come back again and this is what He's going to look like. When He sets up shop and He ends up creating a new heaven and a new earth, this is the appearance of our Lord and Savior. What does that mean for us? Well, I put in your notes here this. As we live between two Advents, we live in constant awareness that Christmas isn't simply about a baby. Christmas isn't simply about a baby. We could talk all we want about the dear, sweet baby Jesus. We can sing the songs, and there's nothing wrong with that. But if that's your only view at Christmas time, you're selling God short. Because that baby is coming back someday. And he's coming back in quite a terrifying form. A judgmental form. We've all endured birthday parties for children, right? I mean, maybe, sorry, maybe I tip my hat a little bit to my attitude. We've all sat through birthday parties for children. 
For me, a lot of times it's enduring. And while each child is a blessing and each child special, it invokes no response like the birth of Christ. Even 2,000 years later, uh, we are still celebrating full bore on the birth of Jesus Christ. But we have to ask why. If you notice, the birth announcements to these folks so familiar in the Christmas story wasn't simply that of a child. When the angels appeared to the shepherds, when the angel appeared to Mary, when the angel appeared in a vision, in a dream to Joseph, it wasn't simply, hey, you're going to have a child. It was, hey, you're going to have a child, and he's going to be a king. You're going to have a child, and he's going to be a savior. You're going to have a child, he's going to be the son of the Most High. He's going to be the Ancient of Days. He's going to be eternal. He's going to save the people from their sins. He's going to be everlasting. His kingdom is going to have no end to it. Clearly, this is not your ordinary birth announcement that you get from a loved one. This is saying that the child's coming, yes, it's going to be in the form of an infant, but you are literally, Mary, you are giving birth to the Ancient of Days. You are giving birth to the One who will strike, at some point in time, will strike terror in the hearts of every human heart. To the shepherds, He was a Messiah and a Savior. To Mary and Joseph, He was a Savior, a Messiah, and a King. This was God with flesh. And even the the prophetess Anna and Simeon, when they brought Jesus to the temple to present Him, and these two got a load of this boy who came into the temple, they were awaiting the Christ. And when they saw Him, they celebrated because they weren't just awaiting a baby, but they were awaiting... They were awaiting the Son of God. They were awaiting the Messiah. And when He rolled up, and Mary and Joseph showed up at the temple, in the temple complex, and and these two, uh, Anna and Simeon, have been waiting years and years and years for God's promised one to show up at the temple. And when they show up with a baby, it's not a surprise to them that they're holding a baby, but they don't refer to Him as a baby. I love what Simeon even says to Mary. He says, this one will cause the rising and falling of nations, and He'll pierce your own soul too. See, Mary needed a Savior just as much as you and I needed a Savior. Mary gave birth to her own Redeemer. Now, the second part of this Advent is this. When Jesus came the first time, Jesus came to suffer and to die and to save sinners. We know that. We celebrate that every single Sunday morning, don't we? We celebrate the fact that Jesus Christ came and He died and He rose again in order to take away our sins, our deficiencies. Isaiah wrote about this in chapter 53 when he said, Surely He has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed Him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But He was pierced for our own transgressions. He was crushed For our iniquities upon Him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with His wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned every one to His own way. And the Lord has laid on Him the iniquity of us all. When He came the first time, He was a suffering, sacrificing Savior. 
what will he be when he comes again? Well, we know. We read this, that Jesus will come a second time to rule and reign as king and judge the world. The second time Christ comes, he's not coming to save sinners. The second time Christ comes, he's coming to rule and to judge. In particular, judge those who have rejected his forgiveness. In Revelation 19, John tells us this, Then I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse, the one sitting on it, called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. That doesn't sound like a sweet little baby in a manger, does it? He's coming to judge and make war. War with who? War with the sinful world. War against the powers of darkness that have reigned for far too long in the world. His eyes are like a flame of fire. That should sound familiar because we just read that in Revelation 1. And on his head are many diadems, and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword. That should sound familiar too with which to strike down the nations, and He will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. And on His robe and on His thigh, He has a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. What a spectacular sight this will be. And if we're believers in Christ, well, everybody's going to witness this. But as believers in Christ, this will not be a time of of, uh, weeping and gnashing of teeth, but I tell you this, this will be a time where we will celebrate the second advent of Christ. When Christ comes back with the flaming eyes of fire and a, a sword coming out of His mouth and burnished bronze feet riding on a King of King and Lord of Lords, He is going to make right the world because He has every right to do it. If He is the righteous Son of God, He must make right the world. In His grace, He has offered forgiveness. That's why we received His Son at Christmas time. The time's coming quickly where the grace will come to an end and all that will be left is righteous judgment. And that will be the second advent of Christ. So what does that mean for us? Point two, living between these two advents. Today, this day, this Christmas, we live with our allegiance to the coming King and not the present world. Our whole perspective as we live our lives has to be based upon the King who is coming to return. The one whose mouth has a sword of truth piercing and slaying the nations. We don't stand with an allegiance to governments. We don't stand with an allegiance to people. We don't stand with an allegiance to particular relationships. We stand with an allegiance to Him who's coming to judge the world. See, because what the world will do, if we have allegiance to it, its lure is going to always be towards sin. It's going to motivate us towards sin. Pull us towards sin. Jesus was born and died to free us of that. 
we now belong to Him and our future belongs to Him. Third part of the Advent, when Jesus came the first time, we know this, He came in humility, did He not? We talked about that last night a little bit. The fact that the, the common form of a manger, contrary to popular belief, was a, was a, a feeding trough that was carved out of stone. And that they would take this child and they would lay him in that cold night air, they would wrap him in swaddling cloths and they would lay him in a cold stone feeding trough. And this was all part of God's willful plan. He wanted His Son to come in humility. He wanted His Son to come in suffering. He wanted His Son to come in suffering. But, the second time Christ come, well, let's, let, we read that in Luke 2, 4-7. We won't read that again. He came to Bethlehem. There was no room for Him in an inn. His parents were forced into a situation where they had to, they had to give birth in a, 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 an animal stall or a barn of some sort. And there's all kinds of Poetic illustrations of what that might have looked like, we're not sure, 100%. But wherever he deliver, they delivered that child, we know that it was a place where animals also lived and fed. Because he was placed in their feeding trough. The second time Christ comes, Jesus will come in glory and in power and in might. In glory and power and might. We got a hint of that in Revelation 19, 11-16. We just read that. Let me read you another verse here. If, uh, if they can follow along. We're going to go to Zechariah chapter 14. Zechariah 14. In the Old Testament, we're told of His second coming. When Zechariah wrote this, Then the Lord will go out and fight against those nations as when He fights on the day of battle. On that day His feet shall stand on the Mount of Olives, that lies before Jerusalem on the east, and the Mount of Olives shall be split in two from east to west by a very wide valley, so that one half of the mount shall move northward and the other half southward. And you shall flee to the valley of my mountains, for the valley of the mountains shall reach to Azal, and you shall flee as you fled from the earthquake in the days of Uzziah, king of Judah. Then the Lord my God will come, and all the holy ones with Him. On that day there shall be no light, cold or frost, and there shall be a unique day, which is known to the Lord, neither day nor night, but at evening time there shall be light. On that day living waters shall flow out of Jerusalem, half of them to the eastern sea and half of them to the western sea. It shall continue in summer as in winter, and the Lord will be king over all the earth. On that day the Lord will be one, and His name one. See, on that day there will be no doubt that the one who stands on the Mount of Olives causes this earthquake, the one who pronounces himself as king, the one who sends living waters to the east and to the west, the one who controls light and darkness before everybody, that is, there will be no like, well, I think Jesus was God's son, or he was just a good teacher, or God will be one on that day. Christ will stand on the Mount of Olives and there will be no doubt in all humanity, in every nation, everybody will recognize that this man, Jesus, is Lord. There is no other God other than Him. None. God is one. And Christ is God. So what does that mean for us? Point three. Right now, this Christmas, we live in humility 
anticipating a glory to come. We know that Christ came in humility, and we know that it's our calling card as well, is it not? The teachings of Christ in the New Testament, that's a whole other sermon series for another day, but the teachings of Christ in the New Testament tell us over and over again that the last shall be first. In the upper room, He gave us the great example when He girded Himself with a towel, right? And he, and he stooped down and before the night of his own, the night of his own arrest, he got on his hands and knees and he washed the feet of his disciples. And he said, we should do likewise. It's who we are as Christians. We operate in humility. You know what? It's also okay to recognize that there is a glory that Christ has received that we will receive as well someday. And that's a joy. Christ came in a stable, cold feeding trough. He was homeless. He was harassed. His parents were harassed. He was betrayed. He was beaten. And He remained humble. Humility is part of who we are. Knowing that someday, our glorification will come because of His glorious coming. Christ's humility enabled the redemption of many I just pray that it may be with us this Christmas that that our humility will be a catalyst that will enable the redemption of many people. Giving up as much as we can in order that others may gain life. Next thing about the Advent is this. When Jesus came the first time, Jesus came to bring spiritual peace to the human heart. He came to bring spiritual peace to the human heart. In John 14, He told His disciples as He was preparing to leave them, we read in verse 16 and 17, but the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in My name, He will teach you all things and bring to you remembrance all that I have said to you. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. Do you remember what the shepherds heard from the angels? that night in the fields. They were told, you know, you go to Bethlehem, you'll find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths. Um, but they were also told that there will be peace on earth. He's one who brings peace. Now our idea, and Jesus said here, not peace as the world gives you. When we think peace, what do we think of? When we think of the dramatic stories of you know Christmas Eve, World War II, when the Germans and the Allies laid down their guns and they sang Christmas songs in Kumbaya across the front lines, and and we we dramatize those kind of stories. You know, we we envision peace on earth as being uh, everybody just getting along and being happy. The peace that that Christ brought initially was the peace to the human heart. You see, we are each born enemies of God. We can't know God unless God brings peace between He and I. That's what Christ was. When Christ came that first Christmas, He was God's offering branch. He was God's uh, first step towards reconciling us to Him. Enemies to God through Jesus Christ. We can't know God unless God brings peace to the human heart. The Holy Spirit solidifies that. But the second advent, we know that Jesus will come to bring complete peace to the entire world. 
There will be a day where there will be no more wars, there will be no more sin, there will be no more hatred or anger or hostility from one person to another. There will only be perfect, harmonious, loving relationship. But in order for that day to come, Christ must return. Christ must judge the world. Christ must judge sin. In Micah 4, verses 3 and 4, the Old Testament prophet said this, about Christ. He said, He shall judge between many peoples and shall decide for strong nations far away and they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation. Neither shall they learn war anymore. But they shall sit every man under his vine and under his fig tree and no one shall make them afraid for the mouth of the Lord of hosts has spoken. What I mean, what an exciting day that will be. We don't have to wake up anymore and read in the headlines where this country hates Israel or that country hates America. or It won't be about that anymore. Believe it or not, you know what's going to happen? It may scare you a little bit. The whole world is going to become a theocracy. There's only going to be one king. And everybody's going to submit to him willingly. And they're going to find great joy in that. They're not going to want a government of their own. The only thing they're going to want is God. When Christ comes, that's what we're going to experience. So what does that mean, point four? It means we live at peace with God now, pointing others towards a perfect peace. Christmas to us, when we say peace on earth, for us as believers in Christ, that means that we found peace. We found a, a joy that kind of rises above any kind of peace that the world can offer us, right? And now it's our job to offer that to other people. We often get the this whole thing backwards. But we're to be bridge builders. Here and now, in this season, between two advents, we're bridge builders. We build a bridge between a sinful man who does not know peace and a loving God who is waiting for people to lay down their lives so that they can experience true and meaningful peace. Because ultimate peace will come in eternity. Now, last two things here quick. The first time Jesus came, He came as one rejected by most of the entire world, including Jews and Gentiles. That's no secret either. While Jesus was on this earth the first time, starting almost immediately with King Herod, he was rejected. You could even say, starting with the innkeeper, whoever that guy was, they rejected him. There was no home for him. The the man hardly ever had a permanent place to call home. Once he left Nazareth as an adult, he spent the rest of his ministry, the rest of his life, those three or four years, with, with no place to call his own. Home was wherever his disciples were, wherever his new family was. But he was rejected by all of them. In Isaiah 53.3, it says, He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. And I love that. We esteemed him not. We're all in that camp, folks. At some point in time in our life, we all were those who rejected Christ. 
And yet the good news is, when He comes back, this will matter not. Because the second advent means that Jesus will be acknowledged and worshipped by the entire world. You say, whoa, whoa, whoa. That, isn't that a little bit going a little bit too far? I mean, like everybody's going to acknowledge Him? Everybody's going to bow down before Him? Yes, they are. And we will rejoice in that moment. How do I know that? Well, Isaiah tells us in chapter 45. He said, For thus says the Lord, who created the heavens, He is God, who formed the earth and made it. He established it. He did not create it empty. He formed it to be inhabited. I am the Lord, and there is no other. I did not speak in secret in a land of darkness. I did not say to the offspring of Jacob, Seek me in vain. I, the Lord, speak the truth. I declare what is right. Assemble yourselves and come. Draw near together, you survivors of the nations. They have no knowledge who carry about their wooden idols and keep on praying to a God that cannot save. Declare and present your case. Let them take counsel together. Who told this long ago? Who declared it of old? Was it not I, the Lord? And there is no other God beside me, a righteous God and a Savior. There is none beside me. Turn to me and be saved, all the ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no other. By myself I have sworn, for my mouth has gone out in righteousness a word that shall not return. To me every knee shall bow, every tongue shall swear allegiance. Only in the Lord it shall be said of me, our righteousness and strength to Him shall come and be ashamed all who are incensed against Him. In the Lord all the offspring of Israel shall be justified and shall glory. And we know that later in the New Testament, the Apostle Paul echoes these words when he says, every knee will bow and every tongue shall confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. When He comes again, and you say, does God have the right to do that? I mean, to force people to their knees and to worship Him? I don't think it's a matter of God forcing anybody to do anything. I think it's a result of people having no choice in and of themselves. The holiness of God, the righteousness of God, the realization of who He is will cause people to fall down and acknowledge Him. It's just who Christ is. Jesus will be acknowledged and worshipped by the entire world. Think about that. Eight billion people is the estimated population of the world at this moment, not mentioning all those who have come before and all those who will come after at this point in time? Can you imagine the throngs of people who will be on their knees recognizing Him for who He is? What a sight that will be. So what does that mean for us? For me, I mean, this is what I devoted on this week. That is a as glorious and amazing of a sight as that will be, it's also terrifying for those people who don't yet know Him. Point five, we live now to share repentance and forgiveness with others before time runs out. Because there's a day coming. Right now, the person is given the option to choose Christ. A loving God in His grace has given people the option to choose Christ. The day is coming where it will be too late. They will not have that choice. And they will fall on their knees and they will be judged. 
not a happy Christmas story, I guess. But it's just true. This is why Christmas is so important, because there's this other bookend that's awaiting for the world. The reality should sit heavy on each one of our hearts this Christmas. Every knee will bow to Christ. Everybody will acknowledge Him for who He is. For some, that will mean a a natural offshoot of this life that we've been living now. For other people, it's going to mean that they're coming to the realization that they're too late. And they're about to receive a judgment of eternal hell. So let's share with those who are disobedient in their hearts to see as many people as possible turn to Christ. Lastly this morning, we learn in the first advent that Jesus came to establish a spiritual kingdom. Came to establish a spiritual kingdom. In John 18, we read this. It's this interesting go back and forth between Jesus and, and Pilate when Pilate was getting ready to judge him, which is so ironic that anybody would stand there and think that they have the right to judge Jesus Christ. It says, So Pilate entered his headquarters again and called Jesus and said to him, Are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus answered, Do you say this of your own accord, or did others say it to you about me? And Pilate answered, Am I a Jew? Your own nation and the chief priests have delivered you over to me. What have you done? And Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be um, that I might not be delivered over to the Jews, but my kingdom is not from this world. Then Pilate said to them, So you are a king. And Jesus answered, You say that I am a king. For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. And Pilate said to him, maybe one of the most saddest questions in the whole New Testament, What is truth? After he had said this, he went back outside to the Jews and told them, I find no guilt in him. We know how that played out. They kept pressuring him, and eventually he turned them over, turned him over. You know, he gave him a choice. He tried to find a way out, you know, a typical politician. How can I get out of this and not anger one side or the other? How can I keep the Jews happy and keep Caesar happy? So he said, Well, how about this? You know, I'm. Choose Barabbas or Jesus. And shocking to him, they said, I'll take Barabbas. We'll take Barabbas. Give us Barabbas. Crucify that guy. Crucify and crucify. But this is the way the Lord would have it. It was God's desire from the beginning. He had to go to the cross. There was no choice. But the kingdom that he was establishing was a spiritual one in the hearts of men. But a time is coming at the second advent where Jesus will establish His literal, earthly, and eternal kingdom. Remember I said a theocracy? There will be no Pilots. There will be no Caesars. There will be no Obamas and Trumps. There will be no sitting Congresses. Praise the Lord. There will only be one God, and He'll be ruler over everything, and everything will be His kingdom. It won't simply be a kingdom in the hearts of people. It will be an actual kingdom on a new heaven and a new earth that He rules over. So what does that mean for us? Well, let me read you one more verse. There are two more quick verses here. Revelation 11.15 said, Then the seventh angel blew his trumpet, and there were loud voices in heaven, saying, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord 
and of His Christ, and He shall reign forever and ever. And in Isaiah 65.17 we're told, For behold, I create new heavens and a new earth, and the former things shall not be remembered or come into mind. Can you imagine that? I love when it's a very sentimental thing. It's not a very biblical thing when believers say, you know, dear sweet Aunt Sally, she loved the Lord and she's, she's now in heaven, but I know she's looking down on us and caring for us. And I got news for you. Her mind isn't even capable of thinking about what's going on here on earth anymore. She doesn't care. She's not concerned about you. She's too busy experiencing the love and grace and goodness and joy. And How could a person who has now been made perfect with no ability to even process suffering or concern or anxiety or frustration, how can that person then concern themselves with your life? Because your life and my life is full of nothing but anxiety and concern and sin and frustration and angst. Dear sweet Aunt Sally, she's got a new kingdom and she's enjoying it. She's enjoying the presence of the Lord. She's not a, a, a butterfly that comes and rests on your shoulder in the springtime and, 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 and is just a, you know, a, a loving... No. She's enjoying Jesus Christ to the fullest and she's not having anything to do with this world anymore. I love it. I wouldn't want her to have anything to do with this world anymore. If I die before you all, I love you all, but I don't want to come back. I don't want to hang out here. I don't want to be a butterfly. I don't want to enjoy you anymore. When I, I don't want to say, you know what, hang tight, Jesus. I mean, like, you're perfect. This is perfect. This is the best thing ever, and I can't get any better than this, but I'm going to go and hang out with these people. I'm going to concern myself with these people some more. Nope. Doesn't work that way. Christ's new kingdom, His literal kingdom, will be one that will be so consuming, so perfect, so overwhelming, that we won't even be able to remember what life was like before. And some of y'all have memories and things that you've done or things that you've experienced that you're looking forward to that day. I know you are. You can drop that junk and never think about it once ever again. So what does this mean for us? Lastly, this morning, we live now knowing that we were created for eternity as are others. Our reality today is that our hearts and lives were made new by Christ's work. Christmas was the Christmas was the the initiation of that. It was God in flesh coming to remake our hearts new through the work of the Holy Spirit. But because of this, we have so much to look forward to. So much to look forward to. And though we don't like to think about this either, but you know, everybody was created for eternity. And everybody will get a new body. The question is, what will that eternity look like for them? For me, I'm going to get a new perfect body and I'm going to enjoy the pleasure of the Lord forever. Why? Because I came before the Lord Jesus Christ and I said, I believe that you died for me. I believe that you are the way, the truth, and the life. The only way I can experience eternal life is through your sacrifice on the cross. Thank you. Forgive me. Heal me from the inside out. I am yours. I exist to serve you and love you. And because of that, God, so gracious and good, He said, I, I give you, Larry, the gift of eternal life. Some people will make their own whole entire life about rejecting God's offer of grace and forgiveness. 
And they'll be made new as well. But at the judgment, they're going to receive eternal life that's going to look like damnation and suffering. And it never goes away. They're going to experience an eternity of reaping that which they deserve. Punishment. Christmas tells us that that God was not satisfied with that. The second advent tells us that Christ must judge those people because He is a righteous and perfect King. Now, from all this, what, what, what's the main takeaway? We've got work to do, don't we? Christmas isn't just about sitting back and celebrating. It's about set, celebrating and saying, now, because I'm thankful for Christmas, I've got people that need to be saved because He's coming again. And the days, whether we like to think about it this way or not, every day that we wake up is a day closer to the Lord's return. The days are getting shorter and shorter. They're not getting longer. This Christmas, we've got to be about the work to see God's people saved. To see people saved so they can be God's people. I'm going to close with a word of prayer this morning, and then I'd ask if, um, if it's not already been organized, if we have a man or two that could help take up the offering, that would be appreciated. Let's go to the Lord together and pray.